Welcome to the About Her podcast. I'm your host, Abigail O'Neill. This week, I chat with my new friend, Ray Rhodes Jr., about the life and legacy of Susanna Spurgeon. Ray Rhodes Jr. serves as founding pastor of Grace Community Church in Dawsonville, Georgia. He also serves as president of Nourished in the Word Ministries. He has served four congregations over three decades of pastoral ministry, and for 15 years, he has led Nourished in the Word. Ray holds a Master of Divinity from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as a Doctor of Ministry from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Ray is married to Lori, and together they have six daughters and four lovely grandchildren. Ray has long been a Spurgeon enthusiast, and his doctoral thesis focused on the marriage and spirituality of Charles and Susanna Spurgeon. He has also published several books, including two that we will discuss briefly today, Susie and Yours Till Heaven. I greatly enjoyed connecting with Ray and learning more and more about Charles and Susie Spurgeon. It was not until reading Ray's book, Susie, that I realized that Susanna Spurgeon truly is, as Ray will later state, one of church history's greatest women. There is so much to glean from Susie's life and legacy. So without further ado, let's chat with Ray Rhodes Jr. Why don't we start with just a few get to know you questions? So okay. first question, as we do begin, would you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself and your current ministry context? Yeah, um, married to Lori for uh, a lot of years since uh, 1987, <laughs> <laughs> and we have six daughters okay. uh, from age 10 to age 31, <laughs> and we have six grandchildren from my oldest daughter, Rachel. She's 30. 31. So uh, we've got a house full of uh, children and grandchildren, and I've been pastoring the church I'm in now for about 17 years. We planted it. Uh, it's in North Atlanta, about an hour north of Atlanta in okay. Georgia. And so it's a sweet and encouraging and uh, church, and I'm thankful to serve there. So that's the, that's the uh, sweeping cliff notes. <laughs> that's perfect. So before we jump into a specific discussion of Charles and Susie Spurgeon, I would love to hear why you believe it is important in general to study church history or why it is important to get to know the great men and women of the faith that have come before us. Right. Well, one thing I think it's our tendency, human nature is we tend to think what, uh, primarily about what's right in front of us and mm -hmm. not see it in any sort of larger context. And one of my favorite uh, passages in the Bible that deals with that is Psalm 78, where it says that we will teach our children the things that we have heard that our fathers told us. We will tell them to our children, so they will tell their children. Hmm. And so you have really a, a look backwards, gener uh, multi-generationally uh, back. You're looking directly in front of you to your own generation, and you have a vision for the future. And in that case, your goal is to... Uh, declare the praises of God. This is who God is. This is what God has done. We want our children to know those things and pass those on to their children. So that's important to me is that we, we are not the only folks that have ever existed. We're not the only yeah. people that, that matter. In fact, the church is described in Hebrews. Uh, you know, we are part of the church. Your, your husband's a pastor, right? So you're, you're a part of that local church, uh, which mm -hmm. is primarily the way the scripture refers to the church as local. But also the, the church alive around the, the globe today, but also the church in heaven. 
those who've mm-hmm. run before us the race. So uh, that's important. The lessons of history, uh, the how did our forefathers and foremothers uh, face life? How did they deal with controversy? Uh, how did they minister in the church? How did they minister at, at, at various workplaces? How did they do marriage? Um, mm-hmm. How, how did, parenting? Uh, it's you know we can't just trans transport what's happened in the past into our immediate context and all of its particulars, but their their commitments and convictions and general principles that are applicable for all. So I think it's arrogant really to to not look into history yeah. and to imagine <laughs> that we we are it. <laughs> Isolates us from the rest of our brothers and sisters. Yeah. How has your study of Charles and Susie Spurgeon impacted your personal faith and ministry? Has it increased your love for the Lord in any way? Yeah, I mean, on one level, I would say it's convicting. Uh, and, and, I, and I tell people all the time that if we sort of look at Charles and Susie and, and we're going to be, we're going to set out to be them, we will be frustrated, uh, and rightly so. God has created us as we are, he's gifted us with his gifts. He's given us the opportunities, the circumstances, and his providence that we have. So we're not to be anyone else in, in history. We're to be ourselves, and we're to use the means that God has given us, his word and prayer, the church, the gifts, the circumstances for his glory and the good of others. Uh, so with that sort of caveat, uh, yeah, I look at their life and I say, well, uh, Susanna Spurgeon, for example, Susie, she uh, she did all that she could do in the circumstances that she had, even when she was afflicted. Uh, mm-hmm. She didn't. She did what she could do during that affliction. She didn't just sort of raise the white flag and surrender to her circumstances. And both of them suffered greatly, and both of them ministered faithfully and. And so, uh, yeah, I do feel like a lightweight when it compare when I compare when I compare myself to them because they accomplished <laughs> so much, and under very difficult circumstances, and they had none of the technology that we are, are that we enjoy today, and somehow they accomplished more. So, <laughs> yeah. One specific thing that I really appreciate about your works and about just your ministry in general is that you are highlighting a great female of the faith. And I'm really encouraged to see that there are works like this being produced that highlight females of the faith. Um, And by no means am I implying that the male contributions or works about men are any less significant, um, just that it's neat to see these works about women. So what led you to write a work about a female of the faith? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I could say just survival. You know, I have six daughters and a wife, and I need to understand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, but it was sort of by accident, really. Uh, I was at Southern working on my my doctoral work there, and I uh, had to write uh, choose a topic for my thesis. And I love Spurgeon. I was trying to see what's what are some of the angles on Spurgeon that no one's really looked at. And I said, well, I wonder if anybody studied his marriage. And then as I looked into that, no one really had. I mean, there's been articles and things like that, but no in-depth study of, of his marriage. And in that process, it led me to discover Susie Spurgeon. I always knew he had a wife named Susanna. I knew that she was sickly, and I knew she gave away books. That's all I knew, uh, because my, my emphasis, and everyone else's emphasis, was on Charles Spurgeon, who's such a towering figure. 
that no one, few people have, have chosen to look beyond the monument man to uh, <laughs> the world, the folks around him. And the more I began to study her in the context of spirituality, I, I did biblical spirituality at Southern and, and I was writing about, uh, I was going to write about the role of spiritual disciplines in their marriage. And it got narrowed down to Bible intake and prayer. And that's where I discovered her. And I discovered that, well, uh, and really I came to the conclusion that we don't have Charles Spurgeon as we have him if he did not marry this particular woman. That uh, mm-hmm. God gave him the right woman uh, in his context that gave us the Spurgeon that we enjoy today. I mean, I think he still would have been a, a great man and all of that, but I just think her contribution to his life and ministry is, has been uh, underestimated <laughs> or undervalued. And so I found this, this lady who sacrificially gave herself to uh, support his work. Uh, I found her, this lady that uh, started this book ministry that ended up giving away 200,000 books before she died. I found a lady that uh, was constantly writing letters to pastors and their wives and trying to find numerous ways to support them. I found a lady that after uh, Charles died, uh, who planted a church. I mean, she was the key person in planting a church and she's an invalid. She's a widow. Uh, and, and on and on we could go. She's a grandparent. She's a parent. Her letters to her children uh, were fascinating and very spiritually driven as well about their her concerns about them. Uh, and, you know, early in their relationship, even prior to, to marriage, she made a commitment. Uh, and, and this was not like an easy sort of flippant thing. She said that uh, I don't want to do anything to hinder the Lord's work in my husband's life, his ministry, his public ministry. And she said, not even sickness, uh, which is maybe a bit difficult for us to understand in some regard, uh, some of the choices that they made in their marriage because Charles was gone a lot. Uh, He was in demand. He was was writing, he's speaking, he's traveling for various reasons, including his own health uh, at times. There's one particular occasion where he's away and she falls deathly ill and they think she may die, but she's able to get a telegram to him (laughs) and she says, do not come home, you know, stay (laughs) at your place and, and, and minister. And that was obviously difficult for him to do, uh, but she was confident in God's sovereignty and she was in God's hands. No, God didn't. Uh, she didn't die at that point. And we could debate whether, you know, I can imagine I probably still would have come home, you know, <laughs> so we can, uh, uh, that that's an honest debate we can have, but it just gives, it shows you her heart that yeah. she was willing for the, uh, the sake of the gospel and the sake of the, uh, the ministry of God's word to even give up her husband uh, when she was sick. And she, hmm. that wasn't easy. I mean, there was times she was, uh, really, re- literally walking the floors, uh, wondering because she was expecting him at a certain time, and you know, uh, or waiting on him to come home, or she would hear noises in the house when he was away, and she'd be anxious about that. Uh, she wept in his study. She sat at his desk. She prayed. So it wasn't like this was a piece of cake uh, to be separated like that, and it wasn't like they didn't miss one another. She uh, 
she missed him greatly. He missed her. He wrote her every day. I mean, every day he was gone. He's gone a lot. So if you can imagine, it wasn't text and email and messenger. And, you know, I get messages from about 10 sources, it seems. Uh, mm-hmm. It was taking a dip pen and dipping it in ink and writing her a letter. And when he was so afflicted with gout, for example, that he couldn't write, he, uh, he, he dictated a letter to her through his, his uh, male secretary. So I found this lady and, and the more I said, wow, this is, and then I discovered that there's only been one small book uh, that's been devoted to her life. And it was done in either 1903 or 1905. And as I was talking to publishers, uh, the interest was, I originally was going to do a book on their marriage and that actually did come second, but I was, I was focusing on their marriage first and uh, publishers were uh, interested more in, um, a biography of Susanna Spurgeon, which was really perfect uh, when you think about it for a lot of reasons. One, her story needed to be told. It was a God-centered, Christ-driven, gospel-saturated story. Uh, no one had really told it in depth before. And so it's like what every author wants to, you, know, you find a subject that's fascinating, that's worthy of attention, and then you find that no one's really done a work on her and then in God's Providence, I laid at Moody Publishers. And uh, so you get a publisher. That was, they put, The first book they ever published was a Spurgeon book, All of Grace. And so it just seemed like uh, everything in God's Providence was was right for this uh, story. And and uh, she's a wonderful woman. So I, I sing her praises. I rise up and praise her. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should probably take a couple steps back. Yep. For those who are unfamiliar with who Charles and Susie Spurgeon were, can you just briefly provide just an overview of who they were? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Susanna Spurgeon was born in London in 1832. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was born in uh, Kelverdon, which is in Essex, uh, sort of northeast of London. And he was born in 1834. She was two and a half years older than him. Uh, Queen Victoria comes to the throne, I think, in 1837. Uh, so Su- Susanna Spurgeon lives uh, from 1832 until 1903. Victoria li- uh, serves from 1837, and she dies in 1901. So to kind of give you that context, all of yeah. Susanna's life, all of Susie's life was under Queen Victoria, essentially, and Charles's <laughs> as well. He died in eight, uh, ni- 1892. So uh, she was a London girl. She was cultured, refined, well-studied. Uh, she had gone to France, to Paris a number of times. She had learned to speak French. She had learned the, you know, she was very familiar with the cultural sites, uh, the, the cathedrals, the art galleries, that kind of thing. Uh, he, just the opposite. Uh, his family was relatively poor. Uh, his father uh, struggled to pay the bills. Uh, they had 17 children. I think uh, it was nine of them that died in infancy. Hmm. Uh, and, and Spurgeon's family, Char- uh, Susanna t- was born Susanna Thompson. Her mother was Susanna as well. I have to explain that in one of the chapters. I'm, I think in one of the chapters in Susie, I'm dealing with four Susannas. <laughs> so, and, and actually, she, she, she never really refers to herself as Susanna. Uh, she, it's always either Susie or Mrs. C.H. Spurgeon. She, I, I, I don't think I found any reference where she is called Susanna, really. Uh, it was always Susie or Mrs. Spurgeon. But uh, 
so that's sort of the, they're Victorian. She's city. He's country. She's cultured. He's not. Uh, she's better off financially. He comes from a very humble background, and it shows up in the way he looks when he comes to London, the clothes he wears, <laughs> uh, his country mannerisms, and hmm. and all the rest. So uh, they got married in 1856. Uh, surprising marriage after her initial first reaction to him was not positive <laughs> when she first met him or saw him. And they were they were married until he died in 1892. And one of the surprising things is how romantic they were, how tenderly they talked about one another. I've often said their love story will make a Victorian blush. You know, it's uh, <laughs> it's so it's, it's such a sweet, such a sweet story. And he became, of course, the one of the most famous uh, preachers in history. And he authored uh, about 150 books. Uh, There's 63 volumes of sermons. Uh, he answered hundreds of letters each week. He, he uh, led 60 institutions, a large church, preached uh, in his early days 12 times a week, often, somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he is, and not only that, he was one of the most famous people in the world during the Victorian era, for, at least from 1856 until his death. Uh, he became one of the most important, which I'm always surprised when I pick up a, a modern treatment of the Victorian era that they don't even have his name uh, and hmm. secular works. So, yeah, she was married to the world's most famous preacher and one of the world's most famous people. In fact, a child was asked one time, uh, who is the prime minister of, of uh, England? And uh, this child had been ministered to, I think, in Spurgeon's orphanage. And the child said, Charles Spurgeon is the prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, when did your admiration of Charles Spurgeon first develop? Yeah, I think it was early 90s, 90 or 91, 92, that I read my first biography of him. Mm-hmm. I'd heard of Spurgeon. Uh, in fact, the my first time in seminary, I was at, my MDiv was at New Orleans, and I did my D-Men at Southern. And uh, I, the, the dorm beside me was called Spurgeon Hall, named after Spurgeon, but I just didn't, I didn't know much about him. I just knew that he existed. He was a, a Baptist preacher. But I read this large uh, biography, about a thousand pages or more, in the early 90s by Lewis Drummond on uh, Spurgeon. And so I got pretty interested in his story then. And then I continued reading the biographies about him and, uh, and then some of his own works as well. And, you know, I think most pastors, especially from a, uh, a Baptist tradition, but not exclusively Baptist. Uh, most, you know, you're, you're, you're at Southern, right? So probably everybody on campus at Southern <laughs> has, has known about Spurgeon for a while yeah. uh, at least and loves Spurgeon. And mm-hmm. I think he's probably the most tweeted. He's the most tweeted uh, historical figure, right? <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he's on Twitter. He's on Facebook. He's on Instagram. Everywhere you turn, you see Spurgeon's Spurgeon's mug up there, Spurgeon's mm-hmm. face, Spurgeon t-shirts, Spurgeon stickers, Spurgeon <laughs> quotes, Spurgeon books. <laughs> yeah. So he, he's like the Elvis, uh, he's Elvis Presley. He's the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Was there a particular work written by him that first sparked your interest? Uh, I don't know about first. I mean, there's, uh, I can't remember which one would have been first, but hmm. one of my favorite books of his it's called Till He Come, uh, Till He Comes. And um, 
that's his communion addresses, uh, mostly sermons. And a lot of those come out of the Song of Solomon. And of course, Spurgeon saw the Song of Solomon. It's first meaning was Christ and the church, Christ's love for mm-hmm. the church. And, and the bride is the church and the, the, the groom, the husband is Christ. And, uh, and so that's the way he looked at it. And as most interpreters did until more modern times, I think it was primarily seen as Christ and the church, God's love for Israel, those sorts mm-hmm. of things. But it's just the most beautiful writing. Uh, I think of anything Spurgeon has done. Mm-hmm. So that's when I often commend to folks. Okay. What led you to study their marriage and relationship? I know it was partly because you were working towards your dissertation, um, mm-hmm. but what what compelled you about their marriage and relationship? Yeah, lots of things. Uh, uh, one, I was just taken aback by, again, we know Spurgeon for this prolific author, uh, this, this, this famous preacher. We know him for all of these things he accomplished. Uh, tremendous. But uh, we didn't, I didn't know him as a guy who would write love letters uh, and he would say things to Susie like, you know, he just left her and he picks up his pen. He starts writing a letter on the train and he says, I've been daydreaming of you. And, and uh, it's only been a, essentially a, a little while since we, <laughs> since I last saw you. Uh, he, he would, he spoke of her in affectionate terms, my doubly dear Susie. Uh, my beloved Susie, wifey, <laughs> was one he often he often called her wifey. So the tender love letters that he wrote to her uh, was this is a side of Spurgeon we don't often hear about. Or when he comes home on a Sunday evening and he's poured his heart out in ministry all day, and and sometimes as many pastors do, they feel like a complete failure on Sunday night, you know, that mm-hmm. their sermons were not resonating with folks or they're, they're just exhausted. I remember uh, last, at, at our church last Sunday, I was, uh, you know, we had a new members class before church. We had the, the service. We had new members training after that. I met with visitors after that. I got home and got ready to go to a counseling session after that. And uh, I was just sort of foggy for the the final canceling session and uh, and nothing like Spurgeon was pulling off with poor health. I think I'm in good health. Um, so we don't see the picture of Spurgeon coming home on a Sunday night and weeping. Just his heart was just overwhelmed with uh, his feelings of inadequacy at times. He, he just felt like he wasn't as cold spiritually or just maybe he was just sad. It, some, he was often sad and he, he didn't know why. And so she would, she would read to him. She read George Herbert uh, to him when he just needed comforting and cheering. Sometimes he felt like he needed conviction. And so he would say, read Richard Baxter, the Puritan. <laughs> and uh, uh, he wanted his heart stung. Uh, and, you know, if you've ever read Baxter's book, The Reformed Pastor, just the, uh, uh, J.I. Packer wrote the modern introduction to that. Just the introduction is so convicting. It's, I, I usually don't get far beyond that. <laughs> Uh, but she would read. She she would read to him, and she said that she would hold him and she would weep with him uh, simply because she loved him. And so that kind of stuff pulled me in. And then during the last controversy of Spurgeon's life, the downgrade controversy, um, someone stopped supporting them. Uh, people were choosing sides, as often as always happens during controversy. 
And so she got this, she got a letter. He was a thousand miles away. He was on the coast of France. And, and this person said they were going to pull support. Uh, and she told, she wrote him, she says, this happened, but I want you to know I laughed. And I forget the passage she pointed to of in the Psalms. And she says, I laughed because, uh, you know, this is, God's going to care for us. We're not dependent on this person's support for our care. And Spurgeon wrote back, I laugh with you. And he had, a, so he had a wife at home that was not panicking, he had a wife at home that was not unstable, but she was so rooted and grounded in God's word that, uh, and, and God's sovereignty, her theology, you know, they both had a high view of God's sovereignty and God's glory, that uh, she remained calm. Uh, in a very in very distressing times, uh, and that I mean, it just everything about their story pulled me in because we think of this. You know, we see famous preachers today, and uh, you know, all of them have another story. You know, they, they have a they have a home life. They have a uh, typically they're married. Typically, they have children. Typically, they have interests beyond uh, the Sunday morning church experience. And, and that's, that's what I've wanted to do in my books is I wanted people to see Spurgeon, not as this monument, not simply as this sort of monument figure that could do no wrong. Like we go to uh, Washington, DC and we see all the monuments of you know, Jefferson and Washington, <laughs> whatever they're, they're, they're larger than life, but Spurgeon was not larger than life. He was called the people's preacher, regular people, identify with him. I read a quote just uh, last week that the sort of upper crust, even nonconformist ministers were horrified at Spurgeon's audacity. <laughs> and and uh, he was not above the people. He was with them. He was one of them. And they identified with him. And so regular people flocked to hear him preach. Uh and that was, uh, yeah, those kind of things. Their life was real. Their marriage was real. They wept. He got depressed often. He was sick. She was sick. They had a grandchild that died. Uh, they went through controversy. His, oh, you mentioned, uh, you asked about a book. Another one of my favorites is, is Checkbook of Faith. Uh, okay. And he wrote it during the downgrade controversy. Mm-hmm. And the preface of the book is sort of like morning and evening, only shorter d- devotions. Okay. But the pre- the preface of it, he talks about uh, one more dear to me than life back at home, suffering. Susie, he talks about the controversy that he's swimming in. He talks about his mother, I think, had just died. He was suffering ill health. So he, he just he just puts it out there. And he said, he said, you could write my life across the sky. I have nothing to hide. And so he would go into his pulpit and he would he would say, I hope that you guys never go to the depths I've been and the darkness of depression, things like that. Mm-hmm. Things that most pastors wouldn't really do today out of fear. Spurgeon had no fear. This is who I am. This is what I'm experiencing. And he would say, God has been so good to me. So in the midst of the darkness, he didn't shake his fist. He didn't blame God. He, he didn't quit his faith. He didn't deconstruct. Uh, 
he saw the goodness of God, even in the darkness mm-hmm. of his sorrow. So, yeah, their marriage was real. It's not a fairy story. Yeah, <laughs> even though like he it. said, my life has been like a fairy dream. He said that. My yeah. life has been like a fairy dream. <laughs> <laughs> he just counted so many blessings. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, you mentioned several times the downgrade controversy, which I was not familiar with until my Southern Baptist Heritage and Mission class at Southern. But can you just briefly describe what that is for anyone that might not be familiar with what that was? Yeah, this would have been uh, 1887 is when this sort of started coming to a to a head. Uh, Spurgeon alerted his readers via his monthly magazine called The Sword and the Trial mm-hmm. of what he saw was a downgrade in theological downgrade. Initially, he didn't think it was as pronounced in the Baptist Union, which he was a part of at that time. He saw it sort of in other evangelical groups. Uh, but then he became convinced, yeah, this is happening in our own family mm-hmm. uh, and, and significantly. Things like uh, uh, questions about the deity of Jesus, mm-hmm. about the uh, reality of hell, or folks denying eternal judgment, uh, and coming up with you know plan B for those who die who don't trust in Christ in this life. There's, there's opportunities after death. For someone to do that, I mean, there's there was questions about the veracity of Scripture, the authority of the Bible, uh, those sorts of things. So these were big, big issues. Now he had secondary issues as well, but the big issues he was willing to divide over, and yeah. uh, so so finally he sought to bring reform. Uh, he's in the Baptist Union had been like a lot of things. When you start something, you've got guys that all agree with one another and. And you sort of shake your hand with this is what we're going to do. And, but there was no real strong governing documents other than uh, you, you embrace believers' baptism. And so they were just, we're, we're Baptist. Spurgeon saw the need for a confession of faith, and he thought they should adopt the, uh, you know, his own church adopted the 1689 confession. And Spurgeon felt that the Baptist Union needed a confession that had teeth in it that we could use to hold accountable ministers who were leading their churches away from the faith. So ultimately, you know, through lots of experience, lots of things that happened, uh, he resigned the Baptist Union. And the Baptist Union overwhelmingly essentially censured Spurgeon, which is almost hard to believe. He'd been the most, he'd been the towering figure of Baptist life. Uh, This is near the end of his life. All of his ministry, uh, all of his London ministry, and uh, he he was cut off, hmm. and some of the some of the guys that he had trained in his college abandoned him as well. Uh, and it was the most uh, devastating. He had several devastating experiences, but Susie believed this was the final straw at uh, the end of his life. That she thought that it was the the reason, humanly speaking, that. Uh, he died at 57. He died. She said he died essentially of a broken heart because even on his deathbed, he was still, he had lost dear friends. He had taken an unpopular stand. He had seen some of his students not stick with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, not that it was about him. It's just because he didn't want anything about him. He, so there was those who wanted to create a denomination, you know, Spurgeon, the Spurgeon Baptist Association or something. <laughs> and he, he didn't want that at all. Mm-mm. But he saw himself as standing for truth. And anytime you see that throughout history, right? You, you, you see uh, 
standing for truth is not always popular, even among those who should be saying, yes, I'm, I'm there with you on that. And, uh, and then people come up with different ideas on how to deal with error. Sometimes people determine it's best to leave and try to work outside of a denominational structure or whatnot. And other times people work from within and they try to bring reform. Uh, and Spurgeon had done that most of his ministry. And he was very much a, a guy who loved believers of different, who had different perspectives on all sorts of issues, but not departing from fundamental faith issues. And so it broke his heart, but he, he left and, uh, and uh, they left him. He, he probably would have said they left me. <laughs> Uh, he left and they left and it was grievous to him. Yeah. So going back to talking about specifically Susie, how did Mm -hmm. Susie contribute to Charles's preaching ministry? Yeah, lots of ways. Uh, One, just she provided an, uh, an arena of support for his work, but also in ways we might not expect. Uh, For example, he would uh, preach some sermons and he'd say, Susie, you gave me that sermon or you gave me that text because she might suggest <laughs> she might suggest a text to him. <laughs> and then sometimes on Saturday evenings, you know, they had company a lot. They had guests in their home a lot on Saturdays. And but at a certain time, maybe like six o'clock, he'd 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 say goodbye to his guest and he'd go to his study. Because he had to he had say he had to, he had to scratch so he could feed the chickens tomorrow, you know, sort of the, his homey imagery. He had to study. And after a while, he would typically call her to come in to his study, and uh, she, she would read to him. He would say, could you get me you know, what it, such and such book? And he knew his book so well, turn the page, whatever, <laughs> read me this section. And so she would read to him. And, uh, you know, uh, and she saw that as part of her own sanctification because uh, for much of their, you know, after about 10 years of marriage, she couldn't go to church anymore, or rarely. Her affliction kept her homebound, mostly. Uh, so she saw that really as how God was growing her. She was able to participate in his his study. And one night he even preached a sermon in his sleep. And she remembered it and gave it to him the next morning, and he preached it that Sunday morning. Because he went to bed the night before, uh, unable to come up with his sermon, and he said, "Wake me up early! Wake me up early!" Because I, I, you know, I got to try again in the morning. And uh, and she didn't wake him up early. She wake she woke him up on time, the n- normal time. And he was frantic a bit. And she said, uh, "Well, let me give you this." And she gave him what he gave, what he said in his sleep. He preached his sleep, and uh, he said, "This is it." And so uh, he took. He took Susie's good memory and his sleepy sermon, and he preached it that morning. And it's in, I uh, forget which volume, it's in the, his collection of sermons. You can still read it today. <laughs> but her support, her prayers, uh, physically helping him in the study, uh, all of those things. Mm-hmm. What could pastor's wives like myself or just wives in general learn from her specific love and support of Charles? Yeah, and I think the two words you used, uh, keep loving and keep supporting. Uh, I think that, you know, a pastor will often feel uh, uh, lonely at times, even surrounded, you know, surrounded by people. 
he can feel pretty lonely uh, in his task, even with his elders and deacons and church members and all of that. Uh, he he needs to, and he his on his side he needs to be cultivating his marriage along with his wife. It's not just her responsibility to say, hey, you know, uh, they're both are working together. But he he needs at the end of the day to know, uh, I've got one friend for sure, <laughs> uh, loyal and devoted who will never depart and who will always love me and be patient and kind and tenderhearted. So I think that's the way marriage is. You can you, you want to cultivate a marriage where you can just be honest and say, you know, I'm, I'm hurting, uh, I'm struggling, I've got doubts about this. And they're not going to like kick you to the curb or uh, run out screaming. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I think he had that. He had her ear, he had her heart, and it was not something that she gave begrudgingly. I mean, can you imagine being Charles Spurgeon if, and, and trying to do what he did if she had been home sort of begrudging that bitter, angry, cold, uh, uh, maybe like John Wesley's wife. And so that's a whole other story, but there, and Wesley was to blame there too. But uh, she, I can't even imagine, I can't imagine doing what I do on the smaller, much smaller scale that I do it. If my wife was at home, uh, you know, moaning and, and mad and bitter and angry and not wanting me to do that in some way. I, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, today's conversation with Ray is far from over. But you know how much I value the podcast sponsors who help make our weekly conversations possible. Today's conversation is made possible through the support of our favorite audio Bible app, Dwell. If you're unfamiliar with the Dwell Bible app, Dwell's mission is inspired by the psalmist in Psalm 119. With over a dozen new recordings, hand-picked voices that will engage and inspire you, and your favorite Bible translations, the Dwell Bible app can uniquely help you increase your daily Bible intake and meditation upon God's inspired word. One of our favorite Dwell features here in the About Her podcast community is the unique Dwell read-along experience. If you've ever seen Apple Music's lyrics feature, then this is exactly what you can expect from read-along at Dwell. Big, bold text accompanied by beautiful background art that scrolls as the narrator reads to you. I personally have been using the Dwell read-along feature as I follow my 2022 Bible reading plan. Each morning, I sit with my breakfast, my Bible, my journal, and the Dwell app and follow along as the narrator reads each day's texts. Later in the episode, Ray Rhodes Jr. will actually recommend a specific plan called the McShane Bible Reading Plan, a plan that is actually available on the Dwell Bible app. This plan takes you through four chapters a day and will enable you to read through the New Testament and the book of Psalms twice, as well as the whole Bible once each year. I know we are already well into 2022, but even so, this would be an excellent plan to start if you're looking to increase your daily Bible intake. The Dwell app makes it easy to keep track of your progress through the plan, and the Dwell read-along experience might just help you reinforce what you study during the plan each day. The Dwell Bible team has very kindly offered About Her podcast listeners a discount code so that you too can engage with the Word of God in this unique Bible intake tool. To receive 10% off a yearly subscription or 33% off Dwell for Life, head over to dwellapp.io forward slash the about her. 33% off works out to a total savings of $50. So be sure to visit dwellapp.io forward slash the about her to uniquely enjoy the Word of God with this special tool for the rest of this year 
or for life. Now let's get back to our conversation with Ray Rhodes Jr. about the life and legacy of Susanna Spurgeon. So you've alluded a couple times to the difficulties or challenges that the Spurgeons faced throughout their marriage. What were some of these challenges and how did they face them together? Yeah, well, uh, early on, they, uh, uh, you know, I think it was about 1868. They got married in 1856. So 1868 or 69, she had surgery uh, to try to relieve excruciating pain. And, and uh, we don't know exactly what was wrong with her. We've got some pretty good guesses. Uh, they had children the first year of their marriage, twins. They never had children again. They loved children very much. Uh, in that day and time, it would have been pretty unusual for someone who could have, have children, that loved children, especially a Christian family, not to have more children. And sometimes it was a matter of practicality. Uh uh, death, the death rate for children was very high. Hmm. So uh, she couldn't have children after the two. The nature of her pain and the person who did surgery on her was the most famed gynecologist of the day as well. So uh, she would sometimes be so in such excruciating pain that she said she could not lift her hands or her head from bed. And after, uh, you know, I tried to do a little bit of research. Uh, there's a there's one book in the Spurgeon Library in Kansas City at Midwestern Baptist Seminary that was a part of his library. He had he had books on all sorts of subjects from from birds to smoking to <laughs> to uh, <laughs> co- countries around the world. Uh, but he has a he has one book on gynecology, and, interesting, uh, which is interesting as well. So I've talked to some other ladies describing her symptoms, and uh, one lady that was has uh, her daughter has endometriosis and that's a theory. And then I, I read that later in someone else's writing an article, a journal article about Susanna Spurgeon. That was a theory that they came up with as well. Of course, <laughs> surgery was much more primitive then than now as well. So some sort of female related issue and it plagued her. She traveled with him the first years of her life often. I mean, they went to Geneva together when he preached in Calvin's pulpit um, they went to uh, Italy together, uh, France together. Uh, she hiked. Uh, so he'd be he'd be riding in a carriage, and she'd be hiking out in front of them, just seeing the <laughs> sights and sounds. So she was pretty active uh, prior to 1860s. And I, I looked at the church books at the Metropolitan Tabernacle when I was on one of my London trips, and you could see exactly when she stopped coming to church because they kept records. Of, hmm. of the Sundays that people yeah. came and whatnot. So you could see when her attendance essentially stopped. So from 1868 until his death, almost, she rarely left home. Uh, amazingly, around the time of his death, the Lord gave her strength and she was able to make that last journey with him. She had never been to Montan where he went for recovery until uh, 1891. Uh, just before his death, she went with him, and it was an amazing trip they had. So they had that going on. Spurgeon had gout, which he described as sort of putting your you know arm in a vice or your limb in a vice and tightening it down and tightening it some more. The pain was mm-hmm. so excruciating. Excruciating. He had that. Uh, he had kidney disease. He had some sort of nerve problem in his face that caused pain, uh, and all of this contributed to his, him. Uh, 
not being able to exercise hardly at all at times. Uh, he gained weight. He had kidney disease. So all these physical ailments that she's facing, that he's facing, coupling that with depression and uh, tragedy, you know, the first year of their marriage, uh, uh, a number of people trampled to death in the music hall disaster and uh, others were severely injured. So they had uh, depression, they had tragedy, they had controversy. Ferdinand had numerous controversies as a part of, at least five big ones uh, during the course of his ministry, or five. And uh, they were separated as well. And I mentioned they had the death of at least one grandchild, uh, one or two grandchildren that died. Um, so yeah, the sort of the normal fare of life, sickness, suffering, challenges, relationship difficulties with, uh, in relation to the controversies. They faced all of those things. Yeah. You noted his experience with depression and um, just the ways that even those different ailments contributed to his feelings of sadness and depression. And recently I've been reading, well, actually just finished it this morning, Encouragement for the Depressed by Spurgeon. And I was greatly encouraged by this. And I know that Susie probably contributed to the support of him through this. So how did Susie specifically support Spurgeon through feelings of downcastness and just feeling depressed? Yeah. And I almost think that Spurgeon, uh, I'm pretty confident he felt this sort of way prior to uh, his ministry, even when he was Mm -hmm. younger. Uh, He taught some things he describes after his conversion, for example. But how does she help him? As I mentioned, she read to him. He found comfort in her reading. Uh, she would pray for him or pray with him, put her arms around him and weep with him. So she was identifying. She was entering into his his pain. And if you can imagine as a wife, you know, uh, you know, I don't know what happens in your home, but, you know, walking into a room and finding your husband sort of curled up weeping and you say, what's wrong? And he says, I don't know what's wrong. <laughs> You know, and, and that's the way Spurgeon would feel sometimes. Now, I say that, uh, but we also have to understand Spurgeon was a very happy man, very joyful man, a very funny man. I mean, you read some of his quotes, and I, I mean, I found myself just laughing out loud uh, reading <laughs> some of his writing. And he he was criticized one time. A lady said that he, she thought he was being using too much humor in his in the pulpit. And he wasn't like a it wasn't like a comedy show or anything like that. It was very appropriate humor. And he said, "Ma'am, if you knew how much I held back, you would not criticize me. You would commend me. <laughs> if you, the, the things I want to say and I don't say." <laughs> so uh, yeah, so he was he was very funny guy. So he was a happy guy. So we don't want to get the picture of him as he's just dragging around all the time, as mm-hmm. you know, sad and dark. So, uh, but, but nevertheless, uh, they would walk together when she was able, uh, they would just talk, uh, just, you know, there's stories of, there's pictures of them sitting in the, their living room and uh, just having uh, good conversation and laughing together. Uh, she, she got letters from these pastors and one of them was thanking her for a book that she wrote and, uh, that he wrote. You know, that she, the, the guy was thanking her, thinking she wrote the book, but Charles actually wrote it. <laughs> and so he had some, some really hilarious things to say about that. Um, so, yeah, I think they, a good marriage is you know how to cry together, mm-hmm. pray together, 
uh, uh, laugh together. And I've got a chapter in the new book of their laughter and their humor and uh, the fun that they had together. Well, I look forward to reading that. That's exciting. What led you to specifically title your work about their marriage, Yours Till Heaven? Just before their marriage, this would have been December of 1855, Spurgeon is going to visit his family up in Colchester. And Susie's going to leave Susie behind uh, in London with her family. And he gets on the train and he writes her a letter. That's what he did. And he signed it, yours till heaven and then. So uh, in the book, I talk about the last two uh, words in that postscript, you know, yours till heaven and then. And so, yeah, that's just taken, that's taken from a letter. He said that a couple of times in letters, yours till heaven. Uh, And then I explained the and then part because they didn't believe they would be married in heaven, but they did believe they would know one another and love one another. And they, they both talked about worshiping God together around the throne. And, and that's really the central thing about their marriage is, was Christ. You, you can have all, you can have laughter and you can have tears and you can do things together. All the things we've talked about, but they were anchored on Christ. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ. They sought Christ. They were in his word. Uh, and they delighted in one another. So yeah, that's where that came from. Yours till heaven and then. <laughs> Beautiful. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Why would you say that Susanna Spurgeon is well described as one of Christian history's greatest women? Yeah. And you know, that's a that's a big statement. There are a lot of great Christian women in mm-hmm. history. I mean, in our in our Baptist world, we think of uh, Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong, you know, they they're on the forefront. Uh, we think of uh, uh, just so many godly women uh, throughout history. But I think the what I appreciate about Susanna Spurgeon and why I would say she's one of history's great women is because of her self-sacrifice, uh, the way she gave herself up. And, and, she, and, and it wasn't, again, it wasn't dutiful. It wasn't well, this is just what I do. This is what I, this is to check the box off of a pastor's wife. I've got to give up my life. She didn't see that she was giving up her life. She was she was so identified with her husband that she didn't want anything else. She didn't imagine anything else. It wasn't that she stopped being a person, but she saw her uh, ministry and her life wrapped up in his well being. And his ministry, and they the two were one in everything. And so I think the level, and I don't think I, I don't think I sufficiently covered it in either book. The the more I thought about it since then, her level of sacrifice, and the way she did that, joyfully, is off the charts. Hmm. Uh, it, it's just that she didn't want him to worry. Uh, she didn't want it to be hindered. She wanted the gospel to go forth. She was his best defender during the downgrade controversy. She was investing in the same things he was investing in. She said, well, this is the time we got to get more good books into pastors, good doctrine into their hands. So they were, they were one. And she was a big reason for that. And to be married to Charles Spurgeon, that's who you had to be, you know, uh, and God, 
prepared her and chose her. And the interesting thing, Abigail, about that is that she was a relatively new Christian when they were engaged. Hmm. She had only been converted uh, maybe a year and a half, and much of that time had been struggling. She didn't, you know, she was, she described herself as cold at times. And then it was meeting him and reading the Pilgrim's Progress, his favorite book that he read, you know, a hundred times, probably uh, over a hundred times before he died. And her, his personal discipleship of her, that she just started growing. And Mm -hmm. my theory is that she'd grown up hearing God's word, reading, you know, knowing the scripture. And then when the Holy Spirit opened her heart to the gospel and then, put her in the pathway of sanctification and the means of grace and all of that. It was like a fire was started and she just started growing. When, when she wrote her testimony, as she had to do, as everybody who joined their church had to do, they had to share their story, t- tell their testimony, their understanding of the gospel. Spurgeon was stunned. He said, I didn't, I knew that I knew that I loved you. And, you know, essentially I knew that you were godly, I didn't quite know how deep you had plowed, how deep the Lord had plowed in your heart. And uh, her growth was rapid and and faithful. So what could female listeners take away from her legacy that could be applied in our own lives? Yeah. Uh, so Mary Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, her spirituality. She mm-hmm. read through the Bible constantly. Um, at one point, I forget the year, she had read through about 14 times at that point in their marriage. Uh, but she actually even uh, loved even more meditating on small passages of scripture. Hmm. So if you've had Dr. Whitney's class at Southern, then uh, you know one a, of my a lot favorites. about meditating. Yeah, yeah. My supervisor. Okay. <laughs> so she would meditate on scripture. Uh, and she loved to turn passages over, like short chunks or, or mm-hmm. verse or two. And she wrote three devotional books. And that's what those devotional books really are, is just a section, of a verse, a half a verse of Scripture that she would, her meditations grew out of that. So she wrote five standalone books. She also was a major contributor to the autobiography of Spurgeon, which was four volumes initially. So she was a prolific author herself. Um uh, so I would say focus on spirituality. That's for men or women. Focus on using the means that God's given us. So if we know Christ, the Bible says, like a newborn baby, desire the pure milk of the word that you might grow. Hmm. So be in God's word, be in prayer. And those two go together. So as you're reading scripture, for me at least, I'm praying as I'm reading. The scripture's informing my prayer life. So prayer, scripture reading, meditation, the ministry of the word of God, and uh, the preaching of God's word, those sorts of things. Uh, you know, there's a, a Paul Tripp's book on marriage talks a lot about expectations. Uh, so whatever kind of, you know, if you're married to a pastor or not, all of us come into marriage with expectations and trouble comes along because our expectations become our idols. And, uh, and when our idols don't give us what we think we want, we become frustrated and we become angry and we we sin so i think that we need to have the right expectations biblical expectations uh, as we approach life and to the ladies i would say as well um you know when if, if it's god's will for you to be married 
Uh, you, nothing is lost when we give. When we give our hearts and our lives, and that's the principle. That's the principle that God has taught us, right? It is more blessed to give than receive. But we don't lose by withholding love. We gain. So giving is gaining, and uh, that's not always ma- materially. Or, well, I was really really nice to my husband today, so therefore he brings me a gold watch or something. <laughs> or something. Yeah, it's just the the Lord gives. Regardless of how a person responds, the Lord gives. The Lord knows our hearts, and He knows our our lives. So, uh, for husbands and wives, don't withhold love. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Keep short accounts with one another. Be honest with one another. The way I mentioned Charles would, he would write her a letter and say, "I, I feel I'm not I'm not as warm spiritually as I once was. Please pray for me." And then he would say, and right now, I wish you were right here with me, but you're not. So I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to go upstairs. And I'm going to seek God on your behalf. Uh, praying together, praying individually, reading the Bible individually, reading the Bible together, uh, reading books together uh, as well. It's one of the uh, things I've read in, in history, from uh, historical characters, the folks who read books together. It tended to have a, a good effect on them. I think I, I may have lost your question in the midst of me talking here. No, but, you did not. <laughs> you have so much wisdom some, to share, so keep going. No, yeah. no. I'm, just, I'm, I'm a preacher, and you know, preachers are hard to quieten sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I have a few fun closing questions for you, and these are questions mm-hmm. I ask every podcast guest. So typically my first closing question is if there's any recommended resources you recommend on the topic but our topic is very specific today. So I'll ask you, for women who have not read any of Charles Spurgeon's works, which one would you recommend reading first? Yeah, to his works particularly, I think I would go, and Morning and Evening is great, and many people have that and read that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a staple item, of course. But I would take people to the lesser-known Checkbook of Faith, okay. which is one of his later works, and, and in it, he focuses on the promises of God in Scripture and how we can trust God. And then knowing that he wrote that when he was in such grief, it uh, is magnified all the more. So uh, that's the one, I think. And then you mentioned that Susanna herself had written several works. What are those titled and how would you access those? Yeah, most of them are out of print, uh, okay. except for there, there are smaller publishers and self-publishers that have reprinted those. Mm-hmm. Um, one is called a, a basket of uh, summer fruit, I think. Uh, ah, I'm, I'm losing the three titles. That's but okay. <laughs> if you just type into a Google search, Susanna Spurgeon devotional books, they'll come up. Okay. The Banner of Truth Banner of Truth biography of Susanna Spurgeon, the one that was done in 1903 or 1905 by Charles Ray, uh, it has one of the devotions in that book. So you get Okay. Uh, the first half is a devotional book. The second half is the the small biography that was done by Charles Ray. Now, kid people, you, your name has to be Ray to write a, a story of Susanna Spurgeon, by the way. So that was Charles. <laughs> Sounds <Ray>. like it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, but my fa- my favorite of hers is called a cluster of camphor. Uh, okay. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, that's really her devotions that 
delve most into suffering hmm. and pain. And uh, those are wonderful. Those, that's like, that's her best writing. So there's the three devotional books. Google Books is also a good place where you can read online. The fr- they're free, mm-hmm. typically. Just type into to Google Books, and those come up. And then she wrote two books on the her book fund, which she started in 18, um, 1875, Mrs. Spurgeon's book fund. And so the, the first one is called 10 Years of My Life in the Service of the Book Fund. And she <laughs> describes the things she's doing, the books, how she's choosing books, and sending books, and she's putting letters from pastors that will make you weep, the sort of poverty that many pastors lived in during that time. But it's also the closest thing we have to an autobiography of her as well. So you've got the, then the second one is called 10, it's, I think it's called 10 More Years in the Service of the Book Fund. So she has those two books uh, that are fascinating. And, and again, they're, they're not really well known. Uh, I, uh, I didn't know about them, and I found them, and they're like, the treasure chest. Interestingly, uh, Abigail, she, uh, she contributed to a book during her engagement to Charles. So she's in, you know, one of their date nights, they had really two primary date quote date nights or date times a week. Mm-hmm. One was on Monday night. He would go over to her house and he would edit his sermon from Sunday morning to in the process of preparing it for publication that week. So his sermons were published pretty early in the papers in various places and so she would sit quietly by. She saw that as good training for the future pastor's wife to sit beside him and see he'd work. But uh, he he was always urging her own to work herself. And uh, so he uh, gave her a copy of Thomas uh, Brooks, uh, a volume of Thomas Brooks, or maybe a set. And he, he said, go through this and find great quotes and then note those. <laughs> and that that became a book called Smooth Stones Taken from Ancient Brooks. And it's still published today by Banner of Truth, and I think publishes that. Uh, maybe Reformation Heritage has that as well. And so she, she writes uh, that there's a love story that no one knows that's happening between the pages of that book while she's sitting beside her future husband uh, writing those quotes and learning herself from one of the Puritans that Spurgeon loved. Uh, she said there's a love story there. Her name's not on the book. It wasn't then. Her name's not on the book now as a contributor or anything. It's his name. Uh, so there's that one. Uh, there's the three devotionals. There's the two of the book fund. There's the uh, four-volume autobiography that was done from 1897 to 1900, I think. And she was uh, the co-editor of that, and she contributed significantly to that as well. So uh, quite the writer. But her devotional yeah. books, I think— would be fascinating for ladies to pick up and you'll find yourself cheering and weeping and learning and growing and meditating on God's word. Yeah. And you can get those in, like I said, self, self-published, uh, on, Am- on Amazon, you can get some, uh, kind of self-published or very small publishers that have redone those. What are you currently studying in God's word? Yeah, I do the McShane reading plan. Are you familiar with that? I'm Robert not. Murray McShane Bible reading plan. And he was a Scottish minister, uh, he died and he died at 30 years old, but he developed a Bible reading plan. This is probably the most used, I would say probably the most used Bible reading plan today. And it's four chapters a day. It takes you through the entire Bible once, the New Testament twice, and Psalms twice a year. 
And, and I've tried numerous plans and created my own over the years. And this is my third time through this plan. And it's my favorite by, of anything I've ever done before. Uh, so, uh, you know, this morning I was in Exodus and Job and uh, Luke and First uh, Corinthians. Okay. So, yep. What brings you joy outside of your salvation? So just everyday enjoyments that are temporal, but they still remind you that life is a gift from God intended to be enjoyed. Yeah, daily enjoyment. So I'm looking across the room right now, and I'm seeing one of my daughters, uh, Lydia, and she's a source of joy. And she's <laughs> <laughs> she's giving me the look. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm just blessed. Uh, we're blessed with our children. Uh, we have six daughters, as I said. Uh, constant reminder of my need for grace and uh, my need for wisdom, and how blessed I am. Uh, we have a ten year old. Uh, Abigail. Her name's Abigail too. <gasps> wow. And uh, she was a, a big, big surprise and, and been a blessing <laughs> to us. So I enjoyed that. A beautiful wife who loves me. So thankful. A church that loves us. And we've been there for since 2005 and uh, don't want to go anywhere else. Uh, thankful for our church. Uh, I like to go running. I like to listen to podcasts. Uh, uh, I like to I like to do research. I get wrapped up in research, and it's amazing. I, one of one of one biographer that I have learned a lot from. He's a secular biographer. His name's Robert Caro. Uh, secular, and he's not he's not he's not a believer. I don't think, and he doesn't write Christian books. But he's a great writer, and his his method of research involves turning every page. You know, so whenever you're researching a subject or a person from history, and try to find everything you can find on that person or everything they wrote, things that's been written about them and turning every page. And I'm always excited and fascinated when I, I find things and like, and especially about Spurgeon because so much has been written about Spurgeon so much. And then I'm finding things that I think have been missed. Yeah. Uh, and when you, when, and, and, and someone after me will find more things mm-hmm. and it just comes by turning pages. So I'm reading newspapers from the 1800s. I'm going through genealogies. <laughs> I'm reading, I'm reading uh, books that no one's ever heard of that I found that are somebody that's connected to somebody that's connected to somebody that's connected to Spurgeon. Uh, so I, I get fascinated by the research. And so I don't get a lot of writing done sometimes because I get wrapped up in these <laughs> research uh, rabbit trails. There's so much Abigail. Uh, like Spurgeon said, uh, the Lord has been so good to me. Hmm. And, and, and I'm thankful for you and your ministry. Uh, the books, the books have uh, really given me a whole new circle of friends and yeah. acquaintances around the world. Uh, lots of podcasts, lots of podcasts. So uh, I've gotten, in, and I like this, where we're able to just talk. And uh, so, yeah, that's been fun. Talking about the books, uh, finding the interest that Spurgeon has around the world today, meeting people in the quote Spurgeon family. I mean, I got to meet Spurgeon's great, great granddaughter hmm. uh, and in London. She lives really close to where he's buried. And uh, that was wonderful to meet her, to go to the Metropolitan yeah. Tabernacle, to meet the folks there. The, just the doors God has opened through writing these, these books. And, uh, and I'm just a, I'm like Spurgeon and that only in one sense, <laughs> I'm a country boy. I'm from the deep country. My wife, my wife was cultured. She was, you know, she uh, went to, uh, a, a highbrow, high, highbrow school in Atlanta for interior design and all that stuff. Mm. 
And so she marries the country boy. And, uh, and the Lord has just been good to me. And Southern Seminary, where you're going to graduate with an MDiv, congratulations on that. Thank you. I, I loved every moment of I my know. time at Southern. Yeah. I'm sad. It's almost over. But it's also <laughs> when, exciting. When do you graduate? In May. When do you graduate? May 13th. Okay. Well, yeah. Definitely go and definitely walk. Yes. Okay. I am planning to walk. Yes. Yeah. And the spring graduation is the best mm-hmm. because it's out on the lawn. Yes. It that's where beautiful. I graduated. It's wonderful. And you get to go to the Moeller's house. And, I know. Uh, the, and you get to tour <laughs> the library, the famous Moeller library. Yeah. Uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of books. So, I'm so excited. Uh, yeah. I, I loved it. Well, thank you. Thank you, Abigail. And I, I look forward to telling more folks about your work and your writing. I, you. I went to your website, looked at your uh, blog post and your uh, <laughs> podcast post. And so you're doing great work. I'm excited you. that you're doing that. Yeah. Yep. I hope you have enjoyed today's conversation with Ray Rhodes Jr. about the life and legacy of Susie Spurgeon. Ray and I could have chatted endlessly about the Spurgeons, about our love of church history, and even about our love of Southern Seminary. It was quite clear from the beginning of our conversation that Ray loves his family, he loves his church, and most importantly, he loves God. It would be an honor to sit in the pews of his congregation and to learn from him and his gentle and faithful presentation of God's Word. I will certainly have to visit Grace Community Church the next time I find myself in Georgia. I specifically left this conversation feeling encouraged in my practice of the spiritual disciplines, as well as in my ministry to my husband and to my local church. As Caleb continues to faithfully serve our local church through worship ministry, it is always my aim to support him well in order that he can serve the Lord and our local congregation well. I enjoyed learning from Ray and from Susie about practical ways to accomplish this aim. Of course, there is still so much to learn and glean from Susie's life and legacy, as well as from her marriage to the well-known pastor and writer Charles Spurgeon. I highly commend Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susie Spurgeon, as well as Your Still Heaven, The Untold Love Story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. I will provide links to both of these books, as well as the other recommended resources mentioned in today's episode. Just head over to abigailoneal.com and click on the About Her Podcast tab at the top of the page. Under the About Her Podcast tab, click on today's episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Of course, it is my desire to see these discussions of scripture, theology, and womanhood passed on in order that more and more women may feel equipped and encouraged to love and to live God's good design in their daily lives. I would love it if you would share this episode or the About Her podcast in general with the women in your life. If you enjoyed this particular episode and have a moment or two to spare, I would also so appreciate it if you left a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is one of the easiest and most effective ways through which you can help spread the word about the podcast. I can't wait to chat more about God and his word soon. Have a great week.